to the Fuzzy Logic Sideshow here on Community Radio 2 X, And now we have a very special guest. I'm absolutely pleased to say that uh, we have Dr. Fiona Wood, plastic surgeon. Now, we hello. in Canberra. Hello and welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Thank you very much. Now, uh, in Canberra, we know a little bit about bushfires and some of the uh, terrible effects of that. Now, the other day I was a bit grumpy, get up in the morning and I want a cup of coffee and I'm a bit hasty with a plunger and I push it down and I spurted boiling water all over my hand and it hurt like below. I was surprised by how quickly a bit of boiling water would cause a burn and how painful it was. And that occurred to me, really, in the scheme of things, that wasn't much at all. There are far worse things that can happen. I can't think of an injury worse than a burn. And now a dear friend of mine uh, had his daughter and wife were caught in the horse paddock here in Canberra during the terrible bushfires of 2003. So our special guest today is Dr Fiona Wood, an Australian living treasure. That's interesting. What's an Australian living treasure? Apart from <laughs> well, I think the emphasis is on living, so I'm still alive and kicking. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, li- the living is good. And uh, you are the director of the West Australian Burns Service and you are renowned for your technique of spray-on skin to treat burns victims. Now, yes, I guess that's just one of the things we do, but we yeah, we treat burns uh, patients in the whole of them uh, in a very holistic fashion. Yes, ah, so it's more than just the uh, injury itself, it's, it's the whole patient. Absolutely. And burns injury is very interesting in that it doesn't take a, a, a much, one, to cause quite significant damage, and two, that even very small burns will have an impact on the rest of you, uh, uh, whether it be from a psychological point of view or from a physical and functional point of view. So it has huge ramifications on your immune system, your ability to move and walk, and the pain c- control obviously has a, a big, is a big part of that. Yeah, so it's actually quite a, uh, it's fascinating from my perspective how such a small injury can have such profound ramifications. Mm, yes, well we'll go into a bit more detail about that because I know from uh, my friend's experience. Now, let's just go back to the start of the event. So here they are out in the horse paddock and the flame front is coming through and it's a pretty horrific scene. What, what's going on in the in the body as during the event itself? Well, the, the amount... The extent of damage is directly related to the energy. You know, sort of, if it's high temperature uh, for a long time, it's going to cause a lot more damage than a lower temperature for a shorter time. So the the actual physics of it matter. For example, when someone will ring me, uh, one of my junior doctors will ring and say, "This is an eight-year-old child who has uh, taken out uh, a cup of hot noodles from a microwave." Then I know that picture profile of the fluid in that cup is higher than a, a, a cup that's got two sugars and milk in it from a cup of tea. You know, so the actual temperature profile matters. And then uh, what matters is what you do after that. Remove the clothes, cool the burn. And I, I was in um, one of the, in a science talk recently uh, for the high school kids, and we were trying to work out how to get the sort of concept of cooling off, uh, over and certainly when you blanch vegetables on a daily basis, you cool them down after you've cooked them, they stay crisp. 
because she reduced the heat. Again, it's the physics. So once the, the sort of heat has passed, and you remove the burning agent, stop, drop, roll, that sort of thing, and put out to extinguish the flames or to remove the clothes, to remove the chemi- chemical burn off uh, agent off you or the hot clothes for the scald, then you cool the, the, the burn area. And there's a lot of very good science come out of New South Wales and Queensland, actually, where if you cool the burn for 20 minutes within the first hour of injury, particularly in a scald, you can reduce that burn by 80%, well, the extent of the damage. So, so the, the first aid is, is hugely, hugely important. Cool, clean running water for 20 minutes and Wait. no ice. <laughs> no ice? Ice may make you feel good because it gets a bit numb, but cold damage on top of heat damage is really bad news because it just confounds the issue and extends the damage. Ah, yes. Well, I so recently... that's what we need in the first place. You need to get rid of the, get, get away from the source, reduce the, the burning agent, and then cool, cool the burn. And then we say warm. We don't want people to be hypothermic from this cool running water, so especially children. So put a blanket around them and sort of cool the burn area. Ah, okay. Now, I know what you mean by a cold burn because every year I go and have sunspots burn off me with liquid nitrogen, but that's yes. obviously pretty extreme. So just just want to talk a little bit about more the cooling part here. Um, is that because you're dampening the, the body's physiological reaction to the burn or is it because you're actually removing heat from the, from the skin and from the subcutaneous fat? I think it's a combination of both. One is you, you're, the, uh, the transfer of heat is reversed. You're, sort of, you're dissipating that, that energy and getting it away so it doesn't uh, cause an ongoing damage. And the second thing is the, the cellular, at the cellular level, there becomes a point when you can't salvage a cell that they go through the the tissue destruction where the cell wall is completely destroyed or the uh, the proteins are destroyed because the temperature is so high and the energy associated is so high but around that area is a is a, the body's response and there's a big area that the cells are in kind of limbo you know oh was that bad enough for us to turn up our toes or can we carry on and so you can influence the programs involved in programmed cell death in apoptosis by reducing the, the heat. So there's been a, that's the good science that's certainly come out of Queensland is that by, if you actually look at the cellular response to the cooling, you will see that you change the, uh, the pathways, the cellular pathways involved in programmed cell death. Ah. So you will actually literally save those cells. Those cells are just sitting on the fence. You'll push them to the right side of the fence. <laughs> and what about the body's inflammatory reaction? Is, are you modifying that in some way? Yes. I think the, the inflammatory response is an integral and essential part of healing. And so that's the, the next sort of step along the line. We've got the, the injury and then we've got the body's response to it. Now, if you reduce the injury straight away, you you have the potential to reduce the inflammatory response because the inflammatory response is essential early on but it can get out of control in burns and keep going which is what we believe to be associated with the really severe and aggressive scarring that is so compromising functionally in burn injury and so by modulating the the burn wound you can modulate the inflammatory response and so it's uh, that is, a, again, a very a great focus. to re- And then the other thing, which, of course, really sends the inflammatory response uh, 
haywire and really gets uh, very much very aggressive is in fact infection and infection is the biggest problem that we have and it's the biggest uh, cause of morbid morbidity and mortality yeah, so we have to be very careful with respect to our infection control because at any point you are vulnerable to that ongoing uh, invasion of inf by infective agents because you've lost your first line of defense which is that uh, intact surface yeah I'm, I'm curious about this uh, inflammation or because I understand in spinal injuries it's a major factor that in the hours after a spinal injury that that's where a lot of the subsequent damage occurs do we know why it is that the body kind of overreacts to the initial trauma well, I think it is fascinating. I think you're quite right to draw parallels because whatever the injuring agent, it doesn't matter. That, that response is associated with da damaging uh, the, the... We call it the, the zone of stasis. We have that zone of stasis that can extend around the injury and the cells swell, the, the, and that compromises the oxygen and nutrient delivery to the cells. So you've kept this ongoing injury that in fact you're quite right even in burns it, it goes on and on and so we have to be very careful at knowing that natural history to try and control it controlling edema the swelling around the, the area is really important controlling the ongoing stimulus by infection really important cooling the area reducing the energy for damage really important there's lots of these things that we can do because the skin's on the surface that we can see that we can actually try and say right let's we're in damage control mode now. But why the inflammatory response does this and why it is excessive, we don't understand. And that's a lot of, I guess, right to the core of what I've been trying to understand for the last two decades, last 20 years, is how we change the, the pathways from repair by scar to repair by regeneration. How can we actually drive to, un, to a repair system which actually repairs the tissue like it was before. Ah, so yeah, in, in scarring. Healing. And is inflammation essential? Yes, in, the, in certain models that with no inflammatory response at all, and in certain systems where we know one of the bigger problems in leukemia and things, for example, is when people cannot mount an inflammatory response, then they, they, they will die from minor infection. So certainly the inflammatory response is essential, for survival but at what point can we actually say well enough's enough <laughs> and that's great uh, but let's control it and let's sort of modulate so that we heal by regeneration and not by scar oh now i'm thinking of things like starfish which grow back i believe and sponges which you can put them through a sieve and they come back to a sponge again so I guess you're looking at repair by regeneration instead of repair by scarring. So you can influence the cells to grow in a way that produces productive or healthy tissue after the event rather than just scarring. So a scar is fundamentally different to normal tissue in some way. I mean, we can all look at a scar. I've got a big scar at my chest from where I um, body surfed over a rock as a child. And you can see the lump. So there's the visible part of it. But there's something else that's different about a scar as well, isn't there? Oh, absolutely, yes. And uh, we, there's so many things we just don't know. I mean, really, very early on in my career, I, I felt that the answer was around the cell. And in the you know, from a skin point of view, in the dermal epidermal junction, we have cells uh, that are regenerating throughout life. Our skin surface regenerates every six to eight weeks, 
And so we have an enormous regenerative capacity in our skin. So I had this idea that therefore the cells were the key to it all. And if we could understand, if we could change the number of cells, just simple things in a wound, so increase the number of cells capable of regeneration in the surface of the wound, would we reduce the scarring? And that's the area with the spray on skin cells that we have made a difference to a point. We've nudged the goalposts along, but we haven't solved the problem mm. by any means. No. We still have scarring, and we still can do the same operation on 10 individuals and get the 10 different responses. We've certainly, as I say, we've moved the goalposts. We're moving towards a better end of the spectrum, and we're limiting damage. We're limiting the scar, but we're not eradicating it. And so then you start thinking, oh, what are the other factors involved? And then there's the extracellular matrix, the scars, the cells, I'm sorry, find themselves in. So, And we know from work we've done with uh, various scaffolds that we collaborate with people in nanotechnology and chemistry and with our colleagues overseas and look at different scaffolds and see how the cells change in response to the architectural framework and how and the chemistry of that scaffold, like they do to an, uh, the the frameworks they find themselves in tissue. But we self-organize. From an embryo to the way we are now, we self-organize to a given shape. So I went along to colleagues in genetics and in different areas where I thought they may have an understanding of the genetics of shape. And I asked the question, what keeps us our shape? What makes this morphology the way we are? And we've had lots of discussions on it, and it, it's a, a bit of an unknown. And then you talk about the starfish, and you talk about the regenerating, you talk about the axolotl. Now, the axolotl will grow a tail again, but if you damage the nerve, it won't. So if you're self-organizing something, you need a three-dimensional information. You need a repository of that information, and you need a feedback from the surface, from the surface that's regenerating, that's repairing or self-organizing. So, in addition, my belief now is we need four things to heal in a regenerative way, and this is where our research has become, has gone in a very aggressive way. We need the cells, we need the framework, but we need the drivers to self-organization, which is the three-dimensional information and the feedback. And so we are looking very intensely into the nervous system. Well, that, that's where, uh, as the is the the patterning within the brain, the homunculus on the brain, is that our three-dimensional spatial information repository? We know from work done many decades ago, last century, middle of last century, in animals that uh, if you change the configuration of their hand, a pattern on their brain goes from a four-finger to a two-finger hand. We and that happens very quickly within hours. So we know there's an element of patterning in the brain that is is potentially useful in this regard. We know that nerves are ubiquitous within the body, and you know, are they the what are they essentially providing the feedback to drive this shape, the shape as we repair? We don't know the answer to that yet, but we've got a long, we've got a lot of the jigsaw pieces of that puzzle starting to build as we work with our neurophysiology colleagues and as we work with uh, people who are specialists in that in the sort of understanding of the um, transcranial magnetic stimulation to map the brain, for example. So we're making progress in that regard. It may be that that isn't the answer, but we'll, we will discover things along the way that, hope, well, that hopefully will help our patients 
improve the quality of their life and the quality of their star outcome and therefore their functional outcome. Well, um, you're talking about a big question there. So, I mean, to answer the question, I would think you're talking about how does an arm know, like even when you were born, you come out from an embryo and so on, somehow your body knows to grow an arm here and a fingernail there and an eyelash here. That's a pretty deep question. It kind of reminds me of the deep question we were asking with our previous guests a moment ago about dark matter and dark energy and where the the universe is headed. I mean, this, I would guess, is one of the big questions in biology. But I am reminded of you talking about uh, the cells regenerating in some kind of way that's useful. Is it true, I think, that the liver is one organ, or it's the only organ I know of, that will regrow to its original form if it's uh, too large or too small? Is that right? It does to a point, again, when you start to look, at the, there is different tissues have different regenerative capacity and the liver's on the, the you know, top end of the spectrum, but the liver scars as well. Okay. You know, it, uh, when you stress it too much, you, 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 know, you abuse alcohol. Uh, For a prolonged period of time, you will end up with cirrhosis, which is a scarred liver. But I'm really curious too now yeah. that you brought in the brain in this story because my imagining of it was that it was the the way the skin or the way the the tissue regrows is got to do with the programming within the the cell type that's on the at the site but now you were talking about the brain being part of that are you saying that perhaps there's a, like a model in the brain a blueprint that tells the local parts how to behave is that what you're getting well, that's, the, that's the hypothesis that we're trying to test you see the the cells locally uh, become cha- become can be manipulated and distorted by the f- the scar framework. Is it chicken and egg? Uh, we don't know. Cells are not j- the cells that are in the repair. We've discovered are not just local cells, but they're circulating, coming from the bone marrow as well. So there's stem cells being all coming from the bone marrow that are augmenting this repair. So there are cells that are sort of more immature down the line, if you like. And how do we direct them into the right line? Oh, so Again, unknown. But my, my colleague Suzanne Rai, who a uh, consultant works with me, her PhD that she's just finishing now, is all looking at that specific issue. Uh, what, uh, amount, what amount of healing is local and what actually is from the systemic, uh, systemic response from the bone marrow. And these are things that you know, we, we make assumptions and we you know that it's all local. Well, we found that it isn't. Wow. We know when we start looking at the nerve and using, uh, for example, if you have a scar on the back of your right hand, we've done te- sensory testing on the back of your right hand and done a, a, taken a little biopsy. And we've done the sensory testing on the matched exact, because of course skin is different everywhere on the, on the body, so we've matched exactly the site and taken the biopsy and the sensation is much better quality sensory uh, integrity on your non-scarred area. But the nerve density is the same, ah. and we and we so there's obviously some functional link-up issue uh, that we're investigating now. But one of the fascinating things is in within this group of uh, 35, I think, patients that we looked at between two and five years post-burn by one of our med students, James Anderson, some years ago, he found that if you had an 80% burn, your nerve density was less than a 20% burn, less than a 10% burn. And if your nerve density is the same and your scar or non-scar, what we're seeing is a profound systemic effect on the, on the nerves within your skin, remote from the body, from the burn side. 
we had trouble getting that published because people didn't believe us and so we confirmed in a, a model uh, where we could take uh, samples before the burn injury and demonstrated it was real within two weeks we see a decrease in nerve density remote within the skin remote from the site of burn so, so no. we don't we don't understand the the reasoning for this is it a, is this related to the inflammatory response or is this as a as a, as it cause or effect but we know it's real and seeing this can we actually manipulate it to improve the outcome now you mentioned that, that uh, you're looking at the whole patient and it's so we've been talking about the the site of the damage the scarring and the so on but there are other things that you mentioned controlling infection and presumably that means large amounts of antibiotics and good procedures for keeping the person isolated sufficiently and looking after that. So I take it that's pretty much standard medicine. In that. Would that be right with infection? Oh, no. Well, if, if we, with, an, with antibiotics, we treat with antibiotics, uh, we brought you think, oh, people always want to give a patient antibiotics. We go, no. Unless you have something specific to treat, we don't want antibiotics because the first thing that happens is you get resistance. Uh, you just because you resist, you select out the res, the organisms that are resistant to those antibiotics. So you have to chase your tail by using more and more complex antibiotics. So our first line is always uh, copious washing, copious washing, and topical silver. So silver is the best antimicrobial we have, and we will treat topically rather than any systemic in the first instance. With antibiotics, we will treat... With antibiotics, if we have an uncontrolled situation with a temperature going uh, uncontrolled and the, we cut a wound that is not controlled with local measures, and if we haven't got any positive microbiology, because often we have a temperature and we can't find what's causing it, we will give antibiotics for 48 hours and then we'll stop them again before the resistance develops. So it is actually one of the areas of medicine that you've got to be very careful how you use antibiotics and antimicrobials and the combinations because you can cause this, can cause a lot of problems with resistant organisms very quickly. Yes. So, well, well, misuse of antibiotics has been a major issue and it's a looming one for medicine, I believe, for all of us because I understand we're riding on the back of some discoveries that were made quite a while ago and uh, the growth of, of resistant bacteria is going to be a big issue. But also, yes. can it's interesting because sorry because if you once the bacteria become resistant, then you start getting fungi and yeast, and they are much more complex to treat with uh, with antimicrobials. Oh, and things so, that come along for the ride. Yes, and they are they are seriously dangerous. And I, we are, I've had for twenty years. I've been, I've uh, been director of the burn service here for twenty years, and I'm sort of uh, have a really close relationship with the microbiologists, and we're very very height on our micro uh, antibiotic use, we have less than 5% fungal infection, well under 5%. At one point, I could name the patients. Yet, you go to the meetings around the world, and in the USA, for example, they have almost 50% fungal infection in their major burns. Yeah, so it does matter, and control matters. You, know, you can make a difference there. Well, let's have a look at some of the other things that happen to a patient. So things like dehydration and what are some of the other after effects of a burn? Well, as soon as you've lost the surface, of course, you're a leaky sieve. And so you lose water externally, you lose salty water, but you also lose it internally because you swell. And you don't just swell 
where the burn is. You can swell remotely, as, well, as we've discussed. This, this is a systemic effect. This is a systemic impact. And, of course, the bigger the burn, the more likely you are to swell more elsewhere. So we have a situation where we, in order to keep the vital organs going, we need to have a, enough volume in the system for the heart to pump around. So fluid resuscitation is a vital part of burns care. But if we give too much, then what we end up with is all those cells in that no man's zone and the stasis zone get in too full and then they start to rupture. So it's not more, more is good, you know, volume is good so we give more and it's better. It's a balance. And we want enough volume to retain circulation, but not so much that we end up with a very, you know, driving that, that volume into the tissue. Ah. And so our fluid resuscitation is a balance. And we use intravenous fluids and we, are, we also use nasogastric and use the gut. Because if the gut's not burnt, we want the gut to be as normal as possible because we know that we need a lot of energy to heal this wound. And also, if we don't feed the gut and keep it as normal as we can, that's a source of bacteria because the gut wall changes and the bacteria in the gut can get across into the bloodstream. You know, so it's a really complex juggling act. Ah. So the fluid, you, I don't like to starve my patients by any means. I would want to give it, put a, a tube down, then their nose into their stomach, start to give a little bit of fluid there, and build that up so that we can uh, certainly we start the intravenous fluids. But then we reduce the intravenous fluids and increase the the fluids going through the gut, and then we, it's safer because you know, any intravenous line is a portal for infection. Yeah, so that whole resuscitation balance is is really quite challenging, and we titrate to the urine output. So it's I just try and explain to the, the juniors when and when what we do here is just a titration experiment, uh, basic uh, that you did in chemistry. What we need is that person to have a urine output of zero point five to one mil per hour per kilo of their body weight. And what we've got is going in, we've got the intravenous fluid, and we've got the nasogastric fluid. If we go nasogastric too quick, we'll make the, the person vomit and we'll lose salty uh, electrolytes as well as volume there. So we have to gently titrate that up, titrate the IV down, but always keeping the urine output adequate, now, but not too much. <laughs> what I'm finding fascinating about this is, and I guess you might find it a bit frustrating in talking to people about what your work is, that people would latch on to the spray-on skin but what you're telling me very clearly here is that it's a, a systemic thing that there's a whole body there are many facets to the injury and to the aftermath and to the healing and th there are lots of different parts and the body is a complex system with many with many parts so w one of the other effects that uh, I know from my friend's um, horrible experience was that uh, it affected the joints and so yeah. there's calcification inside the shoulder and in the elbow um, so that's a longer-term thing. Is that something you look at as well? Yes, yes. Unfortunately, uh, it's a rare co complication. This is what we call heterotopic ossification, I think is what you're describing. Oh, say it slowly. Yes. Yep. Heterotopic. Um, heterotopic ossification. That, all that means is bone formation where it shouldn't be. And it's common, uh, well, it has a rare complication, but it will usually go for the elbows and the shoulders. 
we don't understand the mechanism apart from it being associated with inflammation it's exquisitely painful in the early stages and if you try and operate and remove the bone too early you'll just get more of it a little bit like a scar when you remove a scar too early you just add insult to injury and it gets worse it's, so it's uh, really a very challenging combination mm. of uh, of physiotherapy and surgery later if you need it to remove the last little bits and sometimes the, the joint will fuse completely and we will have to remove that bony block oh. uh, but in my 20 years, I have less than 20 patients that have had that complication. Okay. Well, ha- having um, suffered the traumas of adhesive capsulitis, which is not just quite the same thing, but it is a traumatic locking of the shoulder, uh, it's pretty unpleasant. So I feel oh, yeah. a lot of sympathy for people who have it, and in my case, it's gone away. Are, are there any other major effects of the burn that you wanted to uh, that we haven't covered yet? Gosh, well... One of the things uh, in the early, early days was the way people waste away, the muscles waste. And so their capacity to function reduces. And the, that's a combination of nutrition and the, the hormonal stimulus that's uh, of the ongoing inflammation and inactivity. So we do a, a lot of research with Daleg as our senior physiotherapist. We do a lot of research with that he has done in his PhD as well around exercise, and uh, activity to maintain uh, or not to maintain because we've not got there yet but to reduce the catabolic effects of burn so we ch- we're looking at the sort of hormonal cortisol levels and things like that and the cytokines in the blood we look at the how we can make sure the nutrition is adequate so that uh, the muscles are not wasting to provide energy to heal because we know that the energy to heal is so significant but we also know if you have uh, your appendix out for example you lay in bed for two weeks not that people do that these days but they used to you will waste your muscles from inactivity so in our unit within 48 hours if you are not ventilated you will be with your bandages we have a gym embedded in the burns unit and you'll be on a treadmill or an exercise bike and you will and you will start exercising and it's a and you build the, your you have to, the exercise program is general like total body fitness and specific to the areas of your injury. And so we've done a lot of work on the impact uh, of that kind of therapy, and we're still learning, and we're still looking at you know, is the is it related to the nerve? Is it a nerve muscle effect, or is it a just a, is it purely a muscle effect, or is it a combination? We also know that there's there is probably no body system that escapes but one of the areas that is of particular concern and so we work very heavily with psychologists and psychiatrists and they are part of our team is the impact of an injury on the whole functioning of an individual Mm -hmm. and that is really and the pain responses and coping mechanisms and and, people cope we can't make judgments, and that was very early on. I, we, one of, we did a piece of work, uh, one of our nurses did, Joy Farncon. Right, if somebody's got a scar on their face, that will make more of a psychological impact than if they've got it on their you know, left, left big toe. Yes, I want, I, want well, to get actually, into that. I want to get to that in a moment. Just remind our listeners that we are talking here on Fuzzy Logic to Dr. Fiona Wood, who's an Australian living treasure, according to the bio here, and uh, plastic surgery and... Uh, renowned for her work on well 
after the Bali bombings, in fact, which must have been a fairly interesting experience, but also for the spray-on skin to treat burns victims. And uh, now you mentioned, Fiona, the psychological state of the patient. That must be fairly difficult to deal with because what, what I saw happening in, in the case I, I know was... Um, well, every day must be a torture. The number of procedures going through that the person is and the amount of pain, it's, it's, I can't imagine what it would be like. So how do you connect to that part of it? Well, we, we work with specialists in the pain area. We work with specialists in psychology, psychiatry. And we, have, we, have an under, we know that disempowerment, sleep deprivation, uh, pain, uh, the, the, the interventions themselves, or... Uh, sort of adding further trauma on the trauma that they've already experienced. But, but we also know, like I was just briefly saying, that if the, we have the assumption that if the scar is on the face, it'll be worse than if it's on uh, remote the back or the foot or whatever, and that's not the case. The person's functioning is more related to them intrinsically as, a, as an individual than the body site and the extent of injury. And that was really very insightful work to do many, many years ago because basically you have a, I have a, have a clear understanding that this person's scar is their scar. What I think about it, whether it be on the hand or the face or the, the knee, is, of, is irrelevant. What matters is what they think about it and how they cope with it, cope with and what strategies, what infrastructure they have, sort of external and internal, to actually manage this whole life change and how we can support that and uh, really help them with getting the best out of their personal resource. Uh, now, something must, I guess, have motivated you to get into this sort of thing in the first place. What, what was it? Was there a particular event, a person or a, a something that uh, tweaked you to, to get inspired to uh, look into treating burns? Well, I, I think it... It dates back for me from to 19, a little, 1985, I know, was a, a defining time for me because I was working at East Grinstead uh, where the guinea pig club had been treated in the Second World War, Air Force pilots with burns mm. by Sir Archibald McIndoe. But I'd already obviously been interested in the area prior, because I'd sought that job out. Uh, I'd sought that job as a specific, to, for my specific exposure to burn injury. So I've been in the early days of plastic surgery for me. I was looking at different aspects of plastic surgery. Uh, I've been to Great Ormond Street in the hospital for sick children because, of course, I was in, I'm English. I'm English trained, and so I was there at the time. And I'd worked at St Thomas's. I'd worked in the north of England, and and so I'd sought this job out. So I'd obviously got an interest that had been developing. But I remember when I was there, I saw a child that was a skull injury. And I'd know, I'd got to know some of the guys that were, had been burnt as young men in the Second World War, and their stories were inspirational. And I looked at this scar on this child, and I thought, jeez, it's not much better. How many decades have gone? And it's not much better. Sure, survival, you know, post, you know, the 1940s, 1950s, and we're now in the 1980s, more people survive bigger injuries, but what about the quality of survival? And a catchphrase of our unit is the quality of survival, the quality of the outcome must be worth the pain of survival. Uh-huh. And so that, and I remember that kid, and I, took, I have his photograph, I have the photographs I've carried with me because I thought, yeah, we've got to be able to do something yeah. about this way beyond what is being done. Way, move this whole concept of scholar healing 
Uh, and I was naive <laughs> because yeah. 20 years later, I'm did, still working at so it. Did, yeah, oh, I'm sure that there's at least another 20 or more years in this. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so did you feel that the, that the whole field was kind of a bit static and that it was a case where people would shrug their shoulders a little bit and say, burns, yes, they're bad, but... Um, now, prior to the spray-on skin technique, I guess it was mostly skin grafts, was it, where you had to peel a bit of healthy skin off the buttocks, say, and then reapply it somewhere else? Is that how it was? Yeah, we still do that on a routine basis. I still use traditional methods. The spray-on skin is not the, the whole answer. It's, it's another tool in your box, you know? It's another thing that you can use to improve the quality of the outcome. Uh, it's really... Uh, it's really... a, a not the panacea, it's not the be-all and end-all. Oh. And so we, I use traditional methods in association with the spray-on skin, but what we have is an area that's not burned. How can we maximize the cells within that area that's not burned when we take traditional grafts, cell-based therapies, in order to get the best, fastest quality of healing? Oh, and so... So it's like I say, it's a step in, in uh, hopefully the right direction, and certainly that appears to be the, as borne out the case. But it's not the whole story. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the technique. I have this kind of imagining that you go to a bit of healthy skin that you want to harvest, that you take it, you, you draw it off, and you put it into a vial of some sort with some nutrients, and you grow some stuff, some some skin, and then you it gets applied. Now that's a very crude description, but. Is that approximately how it works? Well, it's kind of how we started, actually. Uh, Maurice Stone and myself started way back in the early 90s. And the technique came out of uh, Boston in the late 70s, early 80s, where you could harvest the cells from the dermal-epidermal junction. Now, the skin is up lots of layers, but in, in point of fact, there's two main layers. The waterproof epidermal surface, and that gives us our waterproof seal, and my friend, colleague says that gives you life because if your waterproof seal's there, you'll, be, you'll survive. But the dermis underneath gives you the quality of life. That gives you the toughness. That gives you the, the stretchiness of the skin. So those are the two main layers and the cells that we harvest are sandwiched between the two. So we put the skin in an enzyme and, we, and it splits apart like a bread and butter sandwich and we're taking, splitting the two slices of bread apart and what we want is the butter. So we do the, an enzymatic uh, dissociation, and then we do a physical disintegration as we scrape the butter off. And those are the cells that we harvest. And that was the traditional way, well, I guess, well, the way that they described in Boston and everything, and the ways that are done most around the world, is then you take those cells, and you put them in tissue culture flasks, and you grow them with the nutrients and the, st uh, the growth stimulators. Now, our observations very early on was that as the cells became sheep in the tissue culture blast, because of course we're all skin grafters, we wanted a sheet, we wanted what we normally do. But as the cells got into a sheet, they changed in character such that the sheet was quite difficult to get to stick onto the body. But when the sheet was immature, the cells are stickier. And so that's how we went from a sheet to an immature sheet, as I'm working backwards in time. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. So it, and so it takes, for example, it took us 10 days to get a good sheet. Seven days, the sheet would be holy. But at five days, we could harvest those cells from the tissue culture flask 
and they would be a spray. So a lot of it's about integrating the the new tissue into the wound area. Absolutely. And so by spraying those cells on at five days, we saved five days. I always say to Mr. one day in the burn is day too long. If you can save it, you should. So so we were saving days there by putting the cells on earlier. Then we looked and thought, well, when we put the cells in the tissue culture flask where we've got to keep everything clean and it's a very high-intense environment, which is very expensive in the laboratory, what would happen if we put the cells on straight away? So by probably 95, 96, we were not only using cells delivered as a spray, as an aerosol, we were using it immediately. When I say immediately, it takes me 30 minutes. Ah, so... And then... So instead of using putting the cells in the tissue culture flask, we were using the body of the tissue culture flask. Ah, yes, and the benefit, of course, is less time in the lab, but the patient's yes. getting the benefit sooner as well. Yes, and then, of course, you've got to be meticulous with surgery. You can any bacteria, and you know the the cells turn up their toes. So then we put the whole thing in a kit, so that you can take the kit into the operating room. So you've got your little kit that's sort of like a little lunchbox. It's got your enzyme and your filters and things in it. You can harvest the skin, process it, and get skin cells in a spray within 30, by 30 minutes. Right. So you can do it at the same time as the operation. And then with that's what was that's what has gone to be commercialized around the world oh. and is increasingly used in various places. And so, so that whole idea is use it is using this dissociating the cells and using the cells in a, in a framework where the, the the body itself is the tissue culture flask because of course we can use lots of different uh, chemicals and proteins in the tissue culture flask but we haven't got the full answer yeah. I don't know the, oh. the wound isn't is like an orchestra You've got the violins come in, then you've got the flutes, and then you've got the oboe, and then you've got the violins back again, with all the different proteins going up and down in response to the environment. I can't do that in any I, because I haven't got the knowledge to do that in the laboratory. Yes, I'm, re- I'm reminded of uh, uh, an interview I did a few weeks back with an expert in uh, maternity and uh, treatment of ba- or treatment of babies, caring for babies, mm-hmm. and she was talking about the difference between mum's milk and formula milk. And in yes. a way, it sounds a bit like there's a bit of an analogy there. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Now, I imagine you care a lot about matching the tissue from A to B. So if the burn is on my face, that you probably don't want to get tissue off my knee because is, there, is it true that the where you move the tissue, that it, it retains the characteristics of where it came from? Yes, it does. And so uh, the, the classic is the palm of the hand and sole of the foot. So we would put cells from the palm of the hand onto the sole of the foot and vice versa. We'd take skin, a skin sample from behind the ear or the scalp and put it on the face wherever we could. So that, and sometimes I change that. If I've take, if many years ago, for example, there's been a skin graft taken from the bottom and put on the face, I could come back now and I can, we do like a, a dermabrasion, a sanding the surface and resurface it, respray to introduce the cells of the specific area and to improve the quality of the blend of the scar. So, so we can actually change that later down the track 
and that's what we do quite frequently as well. Now, one of the things you've been able to do is, I think it's very important in all of this, it's, so it's not just about the science and the biology and everything that we've been talking about, but to really get full value, to deliver full value of this sort of thing, you need to be able to commercialise it, which in a kind of a way is can be challenging to the uh, scientist ethos because they don't think that way necessarily. But uh, yesterday I was met some people who were doing an electric car project and it's all very well having a nice electric car in the lab and doing one-off bespoke solutions for everything. But to get it out there so it's actually used, it's commercialised. So is that a part of your thinking in commercialising the uh, the techniques that you've been developing? I would have to say it's the hardest thing I've ever been involved in. And I think part of that is because I have no training and knowledge in that area. I have never done it. I mean, I was trained to be a surgeon and a scientist, but I wasn't trained to uh, in marketing or finance or anything. And we were very naive, Marie and myself. I'm sure she doesn't mind me saying that. <laughs> but we thought we would commercialize this technology, and we had one goal in mind, to fund our research. So we assigned our intellectual property to the Research Foundation that we still try and raise funds for because that uh, our, saves our... Uh, sort of, uh, gives us our opportunity to continue our research because it funds our researchers. So we assigned our intellectual property to the foundation, made an arrangement with, with the health department in Western Australia, so all this technology in WA is not for profit, so there's no conflict of interest with respect to commercialisation. And that is also a recognition of the support that we had from that environment. So we can use the, this technology as a not-for-profit level for the life of the patents. So by which time I'll be well and truly retired. <laughs> and, and then we, wanted, we, we negotiated with, the, we set up a company to commercialize. And now that company is Evita Medical and it's gone through many evolutions and iterations. And now they're, uh, they're building around the world and it's, doing, you know, it's, it's stabilized. Because it's been a rocky road and difficult. But now we're sort of on, it's moving forward making great progress and as a result we have a, a modest royalty stream and that royalty stream supports our ongoing research yeah and that's frontline, important frontline commercialization for me i say my exposure to that was the hardest thing i learned two things 100 percent of nothing is nothing one percent of something is worth having <laughs> and that's really important you think oh this is my idea mine 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 you cannot do everything you have to collaborate. There's people out there that can do this better than you. So to do that, you have to give something. And I say 100% of zero is zero. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah and you have 1% to, you... of something is worth having. Uh, yes, and and the other thing, yeah? due diligence. Make sure you know who they are you're working with and that they are, they are operating with the integrity that you can work with. Yes. Uh, and, that is ta and that's taken time to understand and learn. And as I say, now I'm very comfortable with the whole situation going forward. I'm very much uh, in the background. I am not a frontline commercial person. It is not in my headspace, and I'm sure they'd be the first to tell you that. <laughs> oh, God, get her out of here. <laughs> She'll give it away. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, and it, but it's, again, it's, my role is to educate the other side of the fence. Yes, there's, there's two very, there's very different mindsets at work here, and it is quite challenging because there's the the healer, the role of the healer, the researcher, 
and then who just naturally wants to help people and then there's mm-hmm. the entrepreneurial uh, fairly mm-hmm. hard-nosed to extent like you say due diligence and so on you have to be pretty up to speed on these things and yep. some of these people out there uh, will eat you for lunch and uh, will walk off oh yes yes we we have been on plates for lunch here and there mm-hmm. but yeah you know, i'm i think my role these days is to, in education I educate with respect to the new, teach people I'd use the technology, of course, and, and, and I learn from them, from my, my surgical colleagues, in, but also educating the system. Well, what, what? In order to make a difference, you have to make money. Unless, you know, but you yep. can't, if you don't make a difference, you won't make money. That's right. So it has to be this symbiosis and bringing together the science and, and clinical side with the commercial entrepreneurial side is challenging. Well, that's right. One thing that's and almost folklore in Australian science is that we're really good with coming up with fantastic ideas, such as the ones that you have been doing, but we're not so good at turning them into real usable products that are out there in the live in the commercial world and get delivered to people by that sort of a channel. Mm. Now, just a reminder, we are talking to, on Fuzzy Logic here, Dr Fiona Wood, who is a burns specialist and well-known across the nation for treatment on how to... Uh, look after Burns patients and Fiona you'll be here at a dinner in Canberra on the 18th of March at the mm-hmm. ANU yeah. and uh, the, I think tickets might still be available for that and I highly recommend that I will be there oh, and uh, <laughs> I'm hoping to record your uh, talk for uh, the benefit of our Fuzzy Logic listeners and anybody else who can tune in and a big thank you to Margaret MacGyver too for helping to arrange this interview for us and for your benefit this morning or this afternoon and uh, so, Fiona, I take it there's a, a lot more on the horizon for you. There's a huge number of challenges for you. Do you manage, you manage to squeeze all this into your life? You've got six kids, apparently, and you're, uh, you're a director of the McComb Research Foundation. You've got lab work, and you've probably got individual patient interactions you've got to look at. You've got your commercial side. Which incarnation of Fiona does all of these things? Well, well I guess if, um, I know I will always be a surgeon. I'll always be a front line clinician but I am driven I guess to want to not because today is bad but I think we all have to learn from today to make to enhance tomorrow's performance so I'm driven to engage in basic science population science uh, to understand you know the difference the the cellular level the difference that we have made and translated into the population level yeah, because, of course, injury prevention and all sorts of things are in the mix. Well, yeah. it must be a wonderful feeling because most of us go to work in a day, get home at the end and go, well, I don't know if I made a difference to anybody at all. But And uh, it is an inspiration, and uh, I, I think you must feel really good about that. And, uh, you know. Thanks very much for your kind words, but I reckon we can all make a difference. We just have to make the choice to do so. Well said. Well said. And thank you very much for appearing on Fuzzy Logic today. Yeah, Dr. Fiona. Well, thank you very much indeed.